Thank you for calling Catholic News Agency and EWTN News. This is Kevin. Thank you for calling Catholic News Agency. This is Mary. How can I help you? Hello, this is Jonah. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. You have reached the CNA Newsroom. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom, a podcast that breaks down great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. It's Thanksgiving week, and this is our Thanksgiving episode. But before we get into that, here's what you need to know. The U.S.-based organization of Catholic business leaders, Legatus, has suspended its annual tithe to the Holy See. This year's tithe would have reportedly been about $820,000. The group said it will reinstate the tithe when it can receive clarifications on questions of financial accountability. Some members criticized a request from the Holy See in February for some $25 million for a church-owned hospital that has been plagued by fraud and embezzlement scandals. Chairman Thomas Monahan said the group is still devoted to the church and encouraged members to pray for the church and all its leaders and for healing in the wake of the sex abuse crisis. The board plans to revisit the issue next fall. South Sudan held three days of mourning after the murder of a Jesuit priest last week. The priest was shot and killed in his home by unknown gunmen. He was originally from Kenya, and he was the acting superior of the local Jesuit community. He had been serving in South Sudan for about 10 years. U.S. bishops have called for reasonable gun control after four people died in a shooting at a Chicago hospital. Bishops decried the senseless act of gun violence and called for a renewal of a culture of life through public policies to curb gun violence. They entrusted all victims of the hospital shooting to the intercession of Our Lady of Guadalupe. The shooting at Mercy Hospital in Chicago is reportedly being investigated as a domestic dispute. Cardinal Daniel Donardo of Galveston, Houston, has denied claims that he allowed two priests to remain in active ministry despite credible allegations of sexual abuse against them. Donardo was asked about the issue during last week's meeting of U.S. bishops in Baltimore. He told reporters the allegations against two Houston priests were not credible. Both priests remain in active ministry. Donardo has committed to release by the end of January a list of all diocesan clergy credibly accused of sexual abuse. That list will include accusations dating back seven decades. It's Thanksgiving week. Because of that, we're releasing this podcast on Wednesday, a day early. And this week, we're telling stories that we think have something to do with Thanksgiving. We hope you do too, but one way or another, they're really cool stories. First, I talked with reporter Mary Rezach about Sister Thea Bowman, an American woman who last week took a step toward becoming a saint. After that conversation, we'll hear from a priest about how American seminarians celebrate Thanksgiving in Rome. From there, we'll go to a story I'm really excited about. The first Thanksgiving in this country was celebrated by people who came here looking for freedom, and by those who welcomed them here. We're going to talk today with a Catholic deacon who welcomes refugee families at our border. Finally, we're going to talk about prayer. Are we actually thankful when we pray? And what do we do at that moment of the Thanksgiving tradition when we're expected to do something that makes most of us pretty uncomfortable? To pray out loud. 
we're going to talk with a priest about how to say grace and how to be thankful. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Lots to talk about. Let's get started. At the U.S. Bishops' Conference last week, the bishops were asked to give a consultative vote, basically to give their opinion, on the possible canonization of a sister named Sister Thea Bowman. They unanimously supported it. Because of that vote, CNA's Mary Rezach has spoken with some of Sister Bowman's friends and with the person responsible for her sainthood cause. You can read Mary's work at catholicnewsagency.com. But Mary's with me now just to tell us about Sister Thea. Mary, thanks for being on the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, so who who was Sister Thea Bowman? Sister Thea Bowman, she was born in 1937 in Mississippi in the midst of segregation, and she kind of came of age just before the civil rights movement really hit the area. She experienced a lot of, you know, the racism and racial division that was going on at the time. She was the only child to her two parents who were a bit older when they had her, and she always always called herself an old folks child. Huh. And one thing that the old folks were into was religion. So she grew up in uh, this Bible Belt town where there was a lot of really active parishes of all kinds of Christian denominations. And so one of her favorite things to do as a young child was to church hop. So she would kind of go around and check out different churches. And Well, she sounds like a Catholic millennial. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, <laughs> but she... Uh, found the Catholic Church, and she had to sit in the back pews at the time where the black people were told to sit, um, and there weren't very many black people there. And she says when she found the Catholic Church, she realized that she had found what she had been looking for. And it wasn't so much, I don't think it was so much the mass, at least at first, that got her, but it was the sisters that she saw in the area. There were some Franciscan sisters from Wisconsin who were serving at the church and the school, and she was just really inspired by their their love and their witness. So she became a Catholic. How old was she? She was nine years old when she converted to Catholicism. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So she converts to Catholicism, and then um, she she was, I guess, precocious because she became a sister pretty young too, right? She must have been pretty strong-willed, pretty strong-headed. Um, her parents, they were Methodists, and they seemed to be all right with uh, her conversion to Catholicism. They enrolled her in a Catholic school shortly thereafter. But when she was about 15 years old, she decided she wanted to become a sister, like the sisters that she was so inspired by. And she wanted to join their order. But they were all white, and they were their mother house was in Wisconsin. So her parents tried to discourage her at first. They wanted her to wait and to finish high school. When they saw that that wasn't working, they tried to convince her maybe she could join some orders that were closer to home, that at least had some black women in them. Um, they were afraid that she would just feel so out of place in Wisconsin among this completely white order. But Sister Thea was persistent and so much so that she went on a hunger strike and started losing a whole bunch of weight. And finally her parents said, okay, okay, you can, you can join this order. So, so at 15, she, she packed up her stuff and left on a train for Wisconsin. So, so at 15, she went all the way across the country to join a religious order where she was going to be the only black woman. She just must have been really brave, but that had to be hard. I spoke with um, a couple of sisters who knew her when they were in formation together, and they said, you know, they didn't they didn't necessarily think about it at the time that it must have been really hard for her. But one of the sisters told me she was like, this is the first time I had seen a black person. You know, wow. she lived in rural Wisconsin her whole life. Uh, black people had were still mostly in the South in the United States. So I think it must have been really difficult. Yeah, so. it's 1953. She goes up, she joins the order, and your story I thought that was so remarkable. There was a headline in the local paper in Wisconsin that um, that said uh, th that 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 thought this was news that she had joined. So the headline was just "Negro Aspirant Joins Community." I mean, just it was just just a totally different world. 
um, from, from us. It's hard for us to even put ourselves there. But once she becomes a nun, Mary, what does she do? So she studies English and she becomes a teacher in Wisconsin, does that for a few years. And then eventually she moves back to Mississippi. She was the only child. Her parents were getting older. So she moved back to help them. But also the Diocese of Jackson in Mississippi asked her to take this position as like the chair of cultural awareness and diversity within the church there. So she starts to advocate for cultural integration. She helps found an institute for Black Catholic studies. She writes a hymnal of African-American hymns. She starts traveling the country and even the world in some cases, just promoting racial awareness and integration in the church, not only for uh, Black Catholics, but cultural minorities within the church. And then I, I was when I was at the Bishops' Conference last week, I was talking with some older bishops who remembered her coming to to speak to the bishops in 1989. They, they remembered it as being really powerful. What, what did she say and why was that such a powerful moment? She was the first African-American woman to speak to the conference. Again, speaking about how the bishops can be better shepherds to black Catholics. And she started off by singing the song, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. And that's something that she would say often. Even though she loved the church, she loved God. Sometimes she felt like she didn't quite fit in in the church. What does it mean to be black and Catholic? It means that I come to my church fully functioning. That doesn't frighten you, does it? I come to my church fully functioning. I bring myself, my black self, all that I am, all that I have, all that I hope to become. I bring my whole history, my traditions, my experience, my culture, my African-American song and dance and gesture and movement and teaching and preaching and healing and responsibility as gift to the church. Um, she also had them sing We Shall Overcome, which became a kind of an anthem for the civil rights movement. And it's um, it's pretty funny to watch because at the time it was it was right before her death and she was suffering from breast cancer. So she's in a wheelchair. But if you just listen to her voice, you would never know it because it's super powerful. And she's, you know, all, all of the bishops, uh, God bless them, but they're older and most of them are white. And so she's trying to get them to sing this like you know, rallying like cry song. Yeah, so yeah. she's like giving him instructions from her wheelchair. Y'all get up. We shall so it's a really, it's a really powerful speech to watch and it can be found on YouTube too if people are interested, so. Cool. Any, anything else, Mary, that struck you as you were working on this story about her? Um, I think just like her strong sense of self and her her courage and her determination and her love for God, especially at such a young age, like to convert to Catholicism by the age of nine and then to go on a hunger strike because you want to join a convent so badly. And even in her later years, I think, you know, her determination in, in telling her story as a black Catholic and in encouraging other black Catholics in their faith. Yeah, that was really what struck me about her character and her personality. Thanks. We'll write more about uh, Sister Thea Bowman in the future, and I'm sure Mary will be covering her at catholicnewsagency.com, so you can keep watching there. Mary, thanks for being here on CNA Newsroom. Thanks for having me.
living in Rome is one of those things that sounds like it would be great all the time. Pasta, gelato, the Vatican. But living in a foreign country, any foreign country, can get old. And after a while, people can get homesick. For the 215 men who are studying at the North American College, seminarians trying to become priests in the United States but living in Rome, Thanksgiving can be one of those times when they get pretty homesick. So the North American College, the NAC, does a lot of neat things to try and keep up some American Thanksgiving traditions in Rome. We sat down with Father David Schunk, who's assistant vice rector at the North American College, to talk about what the seminary does to make an American Thanksgiving in Rome. Usually around this time or beginning around this time of years, when you start to long for back home, family and friends, not seeing them, you become homesick. And so in that sense, it's important for them to have these reminders because for many of them, especially if they've come out of college, this is their first time being away, certainly from the United States for Thanksgiving, but also from family and friends. On Thursday, like a lot of communities in the United States, we'll begin our day with a turkey trot. It's a student-organized race, and it's about five kilometers, and they run around Vatican City State. So they like to bill it amongst themselves as perhaps the only run that, where you can run around a country. After the race is completed, the seminary building is divided up into floors and halls. The halls, they'll get together in some of their common spaces, and they'll cook some type of American breakfast. We eat Thanksgiving, our main Thanksgiving meal for the uh, Italian meal, pranzo, which is usually served around 1 p.m. So we'll have mass beforehand, and then concluding with pumpkin pie, which is always a favorite, and that's something that we have to make in-house, too. It's not something you can find in Italy. And so when you're in a large community, it's important to celebrate these things that remind us who we are as Americans, people of generosity and faith. Thanksgiving, this Thursday, families across America will gather around their tables to share a meal, to talk about the blessings of the past year, and to share the things they're grateful for. But in the Diocese of Las Cruces, New Mexico, this Thursday will mean that another 30 or 40 refugees from Central America will arrive at the doorsteps of Project Oak Tree. These families will have just been cleared by immigration officials to travel in the United States. They'll be going from the border to live with their own families in America as they wait for their asylum and refugee hearings. This is a good thing. But when they're cleared to leave federal custody, usually they have no food, no money, and no way to get in touch with their family or their friends. No phone, nothing. I had the opportunity to speak with Deacon Lonnie Bersenio, who coordinates Project Oak Tree. Here's some of our conversation. Deacon, you are uh, involved in a project in Las Cruces called Project Oak Tree. What is Project Oak Tree? Project Oak Tree provides a transitional or temporary shelter for uh, asylum seekers from Central America who have been cleared by ICE to travel in the United States. So what do you what do you do? What does that look like? What happens is every Monday and Thursday we receive anywhere from 30 to 40 uh, refugees. We provide them a meals while they're with us. We have a clothing bank where they can pick out clothes. Of course, they shower, and the most important part is that we work with their family here in the United States to arrange their travel. 
Wow. So the project got started in 2014. How did, how did things get going with Project Oak Tree? The people who provide this service in a neighboring city reached out to us because they had maxed out in what they could do. And so at that point, we opened up a 24-hour shelter. So we were receiving shelter uh, refugees every day and provided the same type of services along with medical aid if needed. That ended, and then the following year, they asked us again to pick it up. But that time we did uh, host families and we found 25 families that would take them directly into their home and provide those same services. And now what we're doing is a, a shelter, but it's only one, one day a week at an active parish. So you, you told me that you take the families after they've been vetted by ICE. Where does the journey start for a family who comes to Project Oak Tree? How do they go from their home somewhere else to you? Most of the refugees come from Guatemala, so Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. So once they reach the border and they uh, make a request for asylum, uh, an ICE agent uh, vets that claim. And if there's credible fear of them returning to their country, they begin the process of asylum hearing, which can take up to a year. So instead of, of uh, incarcerating a, or holding a detention, a parent and child or children, they release them on their own recognizance to a family member already living in the United States. That's where that transition help is needed. They, you know, if ICE were just to let them go, they don't have a phone, they don't know where they're at. And so it would be very difficult for them to contact their family and say, I need a bus ticket, I need airfare so that I can finish this journey. And so ICE uh, networked with the local Catholic community here in our area to provide those hospitality services, those corporal works of mercy, the, the, the requests from Jesus in Matthew 25 to provide food to the hungry, uh, welcome the stranger, clothing for those who have none. So that's really how it came to be. Deacon, you talked about Jesus's commands. Um, you know, to, to feed the hungry and to, to shelter the homeless, the corporal works of mercy. And, and some Catholics here in the U.S. say, uh, yeah, that's important, but um, we should start with the Catholics, with, with, the, with the poor who are already in our country. What do you say to them? They're right, uh, but it's not an either or. And I think that's where the logic is missing. It's not either do this or that. It's we need to do both. And we actually do both. We have that same thing in the format from the USCCB where they have Catholic charities that provide those services within the United States, and they have Catholic relief services that provides it abroad. You know, we're, we're a global church, we're universal. That's one of the beautiful things about being Catholic is that we're not just our local community. We have this, this beautiful communion of the saints that goes beyond borders, that goes beyond walls. Uh, regardless of where someone is, they're a brother or sister in need. What have you learned from the families and refugees who you've worked with? A great deal of humility. When I sit in their presence and, and just, you know, I, I, I go home and I think, oh, I thought this, will, you know, my Wi-Fi is too slow. Wow, that's a real problem, you know, compared to, you know, a, a, a young woman who, who flees the country because they've threatened to kill her teenage son. Uh, that's, you know, you just stand it. And then I see a dad with a a six-month-old in his arms, and I'm like, how in the world did you do that 2,000-plus journey with with this child in your arms? You know, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. 
you you talked about how the alternative for a lot of these families would be incarceration. Is that something that is happening in your experience more and more frequently? Has the number of uh, refugee families that you have worked with changed, uh, asylum-seeking families changed in in recent years? How how has the political situation in our country sort of changed what you see on the ground? You know, I don't know that it's changed anything we've seen on the ground. I don't think that that change in administration has anything to do with the numbers coming from those countries. Right now, uh, from what we understand, the capacity of the detention centers are at 200%. And so they really don't have any other uh, alternative but to release them on their own recognizance as they await their their asylum hearing. But what has changed is that we're seeing in, in these countries, because of climate change, these, they're, they're experiencing droughts like they've never experienced before. In one of the reports I read from Catholic Relief Services, I think they mentioned that about 75% of their crops did not come to fruitation because of the drought. And so when you think about that, you now have 25% of a, a crop that was meant to feed 100 people. That That's just not going to, you know, so parents who have to decide to see whether their children starve or or make it across here, that plus the violence and corruption in those countries is nothing, nothing like we can imagine. Because, you know, we have an issue we'll call law enforcement, and if that doesn't work, we have these these things, mechanisms that we can pull into place, but not there, not there. How do you, how do you, how do the people who you um, work with, who you meet, how do they process that, the change? I mean, I think especially the children who are coming from those places, you know, with this, with this drought and you talk about in the poverty and the corruption and, and then they come to the United States. What, what are they looking for? What are they, um, what, what is your experience with them? They are looking merely to be able to take care of their families, but also hoping that their children will grow, that they'll be part of our beautiful American dream, the fabric that makes us who we are and the strength that makes us who, who we are as a country is our diversity. And, and they want to be a part of that. They want to be a part of a nation that upholds the laws. They want to be a part of a nation that, that instills this in others. They, it, it's, they're not coming here to take. They're coming here to be a part of something and, and to take care of their children, which is, is, if you think about it, I don't know if you're a parent, but I'm a parent, and I kept thinking, you know, I would do the same. If my children were starving, I would find some way somehow to make sure they don't starve to death. You know, um, you said that they're they're not criminals, and there are some people, some Catholics, some of our listeners who would say, well, um, they did cross the border illegally, or some of them crossed the border illegally. Um, what what would you say to that? That you know they should have gone to the right port of entry or gone through the right process instead of crossing the border illegally and then petitioning for asylum. What what would you say to that? They need to stop and look at our immigration laws that we've known for years in different administrations that those, that our immigration system is broken is broken and and to expect then that people oh we're going to wait till they fix it oh in that time how many kids are going to starve how many people are going to be killed by by the gangs and, and the corruption in those countries they need to wait that's that's just not realistic i don't think that any any catholic devout catholic would just wait while something got fixed if there was an immediate need and their children were starving i don't think anyone who's a devout Catholic, would just stay and not 
try to take care of their children some way, somehow. How, how does, you're only with um, people for a short time, but how does evangelization factor into your work or, um, or, the, or the faith? Do you, do you um, have mass with the refugees who you're with or, or in some ways, other ways? Is there a Catholic character to what you're doing? Our Catholic character is the foundation of what we do. We do what we do because, one, our, our Lord and Savior commands it of us, but two, we also do what we do because we see Jesus in, in our brothers and sisters. Some of them share our faith, some of them don't. But regardless of that, it, it is, it is these, these actions, these, this, this work comes out of our faith. It's like James said, show me, show me you know, faith without action and I'll show you a dead faith and I'll show you my actions that come from my faith. So first of all, that love that we give them comes from our love for Jesus and the belief that that we are a communion of saints, that there is this unity that we share when we pray the Our Father, you know, it's our Father, it's their Father too. And the same God who we adore, they adore. And the same God who made us and created us, created them. And so evangelization goes from there in, in the sense that I give you something to eat, I give you, I give you clothing, I smile and I treat you with dignity. So many of the our brothers and sisters who come to us their their self-esteem, their dignity has been stripped of them by just the journey, by the things they've had to come across. And many of them will say thank you simply for restoring the dignity that is theirs because they're a child of God. And so to me, that's, that's true evangelization. Uh, some request that we pray with them. Some have asked that, hey, can we go to Mass? And so we take them to the daily Mass at the parish they're at. Uh, it is beautiful. Uh, the other day I saw one woman take them into a little chapel and they were praying the Divine Chaplet of Mercy. And I thought how amazing that walls and, and borders don't separate the practice of our faith. This is our, we're recording this for our Thanksgiving episode. And, um, and so I'm wondering what, what you would say to our listeners as they listen to this maybe on Thanksgiving or the day before, uh, as they give thanks with their families, what would you say about the families you work with? One, to pray for them and to put their faith in action. Regardless of where they're at in the United States, these families are, are present in their communities. To reach out to them and make sure they have food to eat, clothes to wear. Make sure that they're advocating for them as their children enter our school systems. And if they're moved and, and, and touched, that they, they, can, they can reach out and, and donate. Do a clothing drive, do a sock drive, do an underwear drive where they can reach out and, and assist in these areas. And our listeners can find, um, can find your site. We'll put, we'll put um, some information about your site in our show notes so our listeners can find um, out how to get in touch with Project Oak Tree. But um, Deacon, thanks a lot, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. On this Thanksgiving episode, one thing that we've been talking about in the office is just um, just prayer and Thanksgiving, right? So one thing that happens a lot at Thanksgiving is you're sitting at the table and, um, you know, your grandma sort of says like, okay, now it's the time for everybody to say what they're thankful for. And you sort of think for a minute and you figure like, well, I better say my family. So you say my family when it's your turn and then, and then you move on. But, um, but Thanksgiving is a time when we really could, if we wanted to take, take just a little bit of time to, um, 
to do some thought about what we're thankful for. And not only to do some thought about what we're thankful for, but also to actually thank God for it. I'm going to talk a little bit right now with uh, Father John Ignatius, who is the superior of the Servants of Christ Jesus, which is a religious community uh, here in Denver. And the Servants of Christ Jesus spend a lot of their time teaching people how to pray. And um, and part of that is, I think, probably teaching people how to um, how to give thanks, how to be thankful. What are some kind of Thanksgiving tips you have for learning how to be thankful, for kind of cultivating a, a spirit of Thanksgiving, and then for actually giving God thanks in, in a real way? Yeah, Thanksgiving time, it comes um, somewhat naturally, but uh, during the rest of the year, um, Americans frequently operate from a, from a spirit of deficiency, and uh, it, it is good to cultivate that Thanksgiving uh, week to week, um, as we do with the Eucharist. Um, and I think, um, I think practice makes perfect, and I think um, the more we give thanks for personal things that God has given, surprises that God has given, uh, the more of a virtue of thanksgiving, the more a virtue of gratitude that we have. Um, and so um, identifying in mind and heart, um, not just the um, ordinary generic things, but the specific things uh, that God has done this year that he didn't do in previous years. What has God done this day that God hasn't done on previous days? And, um, and if we have eyes to see, um, then we recognize that um, God has uh, done something personal in my life today, and giving voice to that is not only a blessing to me, um, but it's also a blessing to those who hear that uh, God is here, God is alive, and God is is working. So what does that look like? Are you suggesting making a list? I mean, what is what does Thanksgiving look like for... No, I don't mean the holiday, I mean the giving of thanks. What does that look like for you? Are you suggesting people make a list, or how how, how does that work? Um, well, an examination of, of heart and schedule, um, but what has been um, what has been surprising, what has been consoling, what has been moving, um, and so there is this... Um, identification by the mind of what has um, effectively been moving and what God um, has done in a surprising way. It, it could be a list of the things that um, have occurred during the course of a day uh, that may or may not be as personal as identifying something that brought a smile to yourself or um, brought a smile to someone else, um, an act of generosity that was unlooked for, um, a resisted temptation um, that, uh, that, that gives evidence to God's grace working um, in, our, in the ongoing conversion in our lives. Changing gears a little bit, the other thing that happens with Thanksgiving and with prayer is that um, you, know, you, have, uh, you have people over to your house for Thanksgiving, you're the host of Thanksgiving, or um, for some reason you're in the position where you're going to be the one saying grace. For a lot of people, a lot of people are accustomed to, as Catholics, the, the, the rote grace prayers that we have, but um, there are some people, I think, who get the sense that maybe Thanksgiving requires a little bit something more, a little bit more something more specific, something more personal. But, but for a lot of people, that idea of, of saying grace out loud is something that they're not used to or that makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are your tips as a, as a person who teaches people how to pray? What are your tips for, for the grace giver at Thanksgiving? Um, well, as an introvert myself, um, I like to have some kind of heads up to uh, give some thought to it ahead of time. If it's a significant moment of prayer, a significant occasion of prayer, and it's important enough to me, I might even make some kind of preparation, um, either a note or two, or um, look up a prayer that I might include as well as my personal prayer. Um, but, um, but looking into um, one's own heart and one's own mind um, without too much se um, uh, self-consciousness, um, just, uh, Lord, what, um, what would be good for me to say on this occasion? And then I'm um, just addressing the Lord out loud um, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I frequently ask the Holy Spirit um, before I um, speak aloud 
uh, to guide and direct our prayer. Uh, St. Paul tells us, you know, that the, the Spirit knows how to pray and prays in and through us. So yielding to the Holy Spirit, uh, perhaps if it's a significant occasion like Thanksgiving, um, having some kind of uh, notes, perhaps, you know, to pray with, and then uh, um, when it's a really significant time, maybe even writing out a prayer or finding a prayer that fits the occasion. That's helpful. That's good advice. Thank you, Father John. I am grateful for this time, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, J.D. Thank you. At the center of our life as Catholics is Thanksgiving, because the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Every single time we go to Mass, when the Eucharist is celebrated, when we receive communion, God is calling us to be thankful, to be grateful for all the things that he's given us and all the things that he's called us to in this life and in the next. Today, on the Thanksgiving episode of CNA Newsroom, we talked about Catholics who have overcome difficult circumstances, refugees, uh, a black nun who overcame prejudice and racial bias. We talked about how to grow in gratitude and thanksgiving, and we talked about young men who are studying for the priesthood in Rome to serve the church. All of those things are things to be thankful for. All of those things are things that should call us to reflect on what God has given us and what he's calling us to. So this Thanksgiving, thanks for listening. You can hear more about everything we talked about on this episode by visiting our website, www.catholicnewsagency.com. Please share this podcast with your friends and families, and please subscribe to CNA Newsroom on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm J.D. Flynn. Thanks for listening, and have a happy Thanksgiving. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, an EWTN news outlet. Our host is me, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. A special thanks this week to Hannah Brockhaus, our Rome correspondent, and to everybody who was on the show and helped out, especially everybody on our team who worked a little bit extra this week, Thanksgiving week, to get this episode out to you. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.